You're listening to Underground History, a collaboration between JPR and the Southern Oregon University Laboratory of Anthropology, or SULA. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and each month, sometimes more, we take a deep dive into little-known aspects of history in Oregon and beyond. I am out here in the field with the bottle guy, Bill Lindsay. For all of you archaeologists out there listening, you will be um, just as excited as I am to get to pick the brain of the bottle master himself. So Bill Lindsay created the BLM uh, bottle website, which is now hosted by the Society for Historical Archaeology, and it's been the go-to bottle reference since as long as I've been an archaeologist. So, Bill, welcome to the show. And why don't you start by telling us a little bit about when you started that website and um, if you anticipated how big and how much of a, a resource institution it would become. Thanks, Chelsea. I started it in about 2003, thinking it would be just a tool for archaeologists within the Bureau or other public government agencies to access in order to determine a couple things about historic bottles. First, to date it based on diagnostic characteristics that uh, are related to the manufacturer over time. You know, the old bottles 19th century into the very early 20th century were hand-blown mouth blown. After that time machines took over so by 1918 or so about 90 percent of all bottles were being made on machines and shortly after that basically all. Just before I retired the BLM allowed me to move the historic bottle website to the servers which were gratefully off offered up to me uh, from the Society for Historic Archaeology and there it resides now. A big part of the historic bottle website is the plethora 6,000 some pages of articles that deal with makers markings the markings that many manufacturers put on bottles and are an excellent tool for dating a bottle you know if you find out a bottle was made in uh, in Wisconsin glassworks between 1888 and 1893 was the business dates of the company you know if you find a bottle with that mark on it you know it dates between 1888 and 1893 <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure everybody could already tell you are very very knowledgeable about bottles but you're not an archaeologist so what made you so interested in bottles as an artifact type and in the BLM like how did you interface with that kind of material culture as a kid our family dug bottles. It was just what people did back then. Out and that's now illegal for in many places. <laughs> just going to insert that. <laughs> yeah, this is the late 60s. And at that point, I started just really getting into the diagnostics, the way bottles were made, the, the array of them, the shapes, the sizes. The second part of the website is is also the t typology, what a particular bottle was most likely used for. It's up to the purchaser of the bottle to use it for whatever, but uh, there are certain designs and styles that are are typical of a particular product or group of products. Beyond that, you know, once I got into BLM, I was a range management specialist and worked in that in Nevada as well as Southeast Oregon. I guess five years before I retired, they thought I needed a special project. Uh, they offered me whatever I wanted to pick that had something to do with resource management. Well, and they know that I was going to pick, you know, something like 
what is now the historic bottle website. And I'm so glad you did. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. And, you know, one of the things you were talking about is all the different ways you can tell um, what a bottle is. So, you know, you were talking a little bit about the colors and the types of things, the manufacturers, and those are, you know, all what we call diagnostic elements. And that's what's so useful about your website is you can go and you can be like, I have an aqua glass bottle. What is it? And, you know, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? One of the things I remember, you know, when I first started using this website is how vast it is like you could and I have spent countless hours you go in there trying to look up one thing next thing you know five hours have passed and you've learned everything you've ever wanted to know about stoneware ale bottles or whatever so it's not just glass too the the main entry into the website is the dating of a bottle based on the diagnostic manufacturing base features that you can find the key that covers that part has a whole list of questions you know is it machine made so you can determine whether it's machine made which tends to, to put it firmly in the the 20th century or whether it's blown by hand there's different attributes like how the lip was applied a finish in glassmaker parlance the mold seams the base the the shape and all that comes next once you determine an age based on those manufacturing techniques it moves you to the typology which is you know what was a bottle primarily made for certain designs were used in certain ways the majority of the time like the examples we'll talk about here soon yeah and that's that's one of the things that's so interesting about this is you created a typology that really helps standardize the way we talk about these artifacts in the field, which is always so helpful if we're describing them the same way. It's a lot easier to recognize something similar in somebody else's site. But also, you know, some of the things you hit upon, the dating, like why is it so important to date a bottle? You know, of course, if it's really old, that's cool. But in the federal agencies and also state agencies and basically any archaeology, we really want those diagnostic dates because that helps us tell is something archaeological in nature. Is it over the 50-year mark if it's uh, federal? Is it over the 75-year mark if we're in Oregon? And that helps us decide what actions we take on any given site. So that's one of the practical uses for archaeology, but then also the, the what the contents were. So that's where we really get into the people that were using these bottles, because that's when you get consumer choice reflected, perhaps market access, and, you know, we can start to see, you know, medicines, all sorts of things, what people, what kind of food they were eating and, and, and drinking. Actually, most bottles we find are probably alcohol bottles. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We'll talk about here. Yeah, yeah. So food bottles here, which is interesting because a lot of times we find alcohol bottles. But what are the most common bottles that people ask you about? Well, probably one of them is like the barrel mustard. You know, people find those and they think it's God knows what. But uh, <laughs> there's a certain design to the with rings on the body, horizontal rings, a wide mouth. Is typical of bottles that are food. Anyway, uh, probably I get most questions about 20th century bottles, typically early from 1900 to 1930s, 40s, even later sometimes. But Oh, that's interesting. And, you know, so we've got some of these barrel mustard. We're out in the field right now. We're sitting on a log, and we're looking at these glass artifacts that are in the soil from uh, probably 1860s or so, and, and Bill's going to tell us a little bit about how he decided that. I've seen many, many barrel mustard jars, but I didn't realize they came back this far. So I have the, the ability to see these with my eyes, but why don't you describe a little bit for the listeners what it is that we're looking at here? 
Yeah, the barrel mustard is a common design. It was used from at least as far back as the 1850s, probably originated in France, and uh, used, I've seen it in catalogs dating from the 19-teens, you know, the teens of the 20th century. It had, Typically, they have, the style is strongly identified with uh, mustard. It has three rings spaced apart of like a third of an inch on the lower body, then on the upper body another three rings and then a mouth that's generally over an inch wide so you can access it just like a mustard you know french's mustard now uh, except different shape it looks like a little squat barrel it you know that you would have a downspout in from your gutter if you water. <laughs> well and two things there so one thing that's a clue that we use for for bottles in general if it's small opening it's probably liquid if it's a wider opening it's probably some other kind of content like a like a mustard but why barrel jar shape so is, does this reflect just advertising and marketing like people expect hey i i want my mustard jar to look a certain way yeah i mean the, it's totally <laughs> totally what it's about it's just so strongly identified with it. I've never seen a barrel mustard with any labels or identification that isn't mustard. Some other kinds of sauces and stuff, but it, you know that it was something heavy with that big mouth. You can hear the glass tinkling in the background. Yeah. Um, almost a complete one. Yeah. Uh, almost a complete one. That's awesome. And so what makes you think that this is consistent with the 1880 or 1860s-ish? Is it just because it's thick or it's imperfections in the glass? Like, what are you seeing there that kind of helps you well, decide it's not from the, the 30s? The color of the glass is really odd. You know, this one is almost atypical, and it's really, really pale greenish. Mm -hmm. Most of them are just colorless glass. Sometimes it'll turn amethyst with the solarization of the sun because it was decolorized with manganese dioxide. Other ones that are a little later, later would be ones that were decolorized with selenium, especially you get it in the machine-made era, and there are machine-made ones that look basically identical, but had a screw cap at one point. The earlier ones tend to have odd look to them. It's not horribly crude, but the way the, the finish, the, which is, the, again, the glassmaker parlance for the lip, and just the overall look, including most of the base is gone, but there's the feel of, I think this was pottled, which is a rod that was, when the bottle was first blown, you had to finish the bottle, applying or tooling the lip to shape, so they fused a rod of various types onto the base and used it to hold the bottle when you cracked it off from the blowpipe. I believe this was probably pottled. So that places it firmly in the early to mid-Civil War and before. That is so cool. You're listening to Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange. You can find us online at jeffexchange.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and right now I am doing some serious fangirling out here in the woods with bottle expert Bill Lindsay. So we have a couple other bottles here that we were going to talk about. These ones look kind of fancy. Yeah, this was these, uh, I mean, I guess you can call it eight-sided with the corners and the front panel. They're sort of rectangular and overall shape, uh, but with fluted panels, it is strongly identified with spice. I've seen all kinds of ones that had all kinds of different spices in it, typically pepper, chili pepper, I, I don't know for sure, but these are bottles I've done some uh, research on some of the wrecks in the Missouri. There are several museums, one that was on Fish and Wildlife Service land, 
another one uh, that was privately excavated. Both had hundreds of these on them and the one ship that sank in 1856 they're mostly pondled. These ones that we have here which reflect the ones that were on the 1865 ship I looked at and do not have pondles but they're really close to that era. Both of them were blown in a mold that had a base plate that sort of centered the mold. Halves, two halves of the mold as they swung it shut that helped center it. This one of them has a large base plate the other one has a smaller one, but in any event, even without a pottle scar, it pretty much places these, because some of the 18, late 1850s ones uh, were not pottled too, but in the late 1850s through the Civil War, as may, late as maybe 1870. That is so cool. And, you know, it's interesting that we're finding mustard jars and then two spice jars. And I see another top to a jar that's got a, a wide rim, so maybe that's to one and of the spice bars. one of these. Okay. Yeah. And so we are right above um, where a bunch of our colleagues are working on what we believe is a cabin site of one of these early miners out here in the Siskiyou Mountains. And so that makes sense because somebody is cooking and they're throwing their garbage and, you know, the kitchen waste is kind of making its way not too far away from the, the cabin. Because otherwise we would maybe see other types of debris with this. And I'm just, just seeing these, these food-related bottles. So I have one question for you. When I talk about bottles, because um, a lot of times I have to do educational stuff like this, but one of the things that always strikes me is there is a lot of change over time, which is important because that's how you're, you know, you're, analyzing these and helping to date them but there's also a lot that stays the same so for example wine bottles champagne bottles they really have not changed very much so you know maybe talk a little bit about that both classes of bottles wine and champagne and often they were interchangeable between each other date back at least 200 years and have the same basic shape as the ones you get at the store today it's really kind of amazing the, there's two main styles of the of the bottles one with a sloped shoulder one with a sharper shoulder the sharper shoulder is like you would get a bordeaux wine now the the more graceful shoulder is say a pinot and champagne is the same basic shape champagne bottles had to be much more heavy glass versus a wine bottle because of course it's carbonated uh, but i have pictures on the website. I cover the uh, champagne and wine bottles pretty good. There's an example that came from an 1811 wreck. I think it was an English ship somewhere in the channel between France and England and it's dated because they have firmly identified the ship and it looks just like the ones you get now but with a cork cork yeah. instead of a plastic cork or they don't put champagne in, in screw tops I guess. Thank you so much Bill for talking with us today. You have been listening to Underground History on Jefferson Public Radio. I'm your host Chelsea Rose. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts.